are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, if we haven't been introduced before, and I'm very pleased that we could come together here on a Thursday afternoon live. Uh, I'm speaking to you from my home in the west coast of Southern California, and as I speak to you, we're here getting together on our regular time for questions and answers, and we've got a lot to talk about today, so I'm going to get right into it and uh, go with our lead question today. Our lead question today is something that was sort of left over from last week's chat. What I mean by that is that it is simply a question that we couldn't get to, Uh, Or perhaps for another reason, we just weren't able to prioritize that question. We only get together for about an hour uh, each Thursday afternoon. And so some questions get left behind, but we try to look through those questions that we leave behind and see what we can do to answer some of those. So from last week's live chat, we had a question from Dove, and this was the question. How do we practically present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God? Man, I think that's a great question because we read the truth in the Bible and sometimes we understand the truth in the Bible, but knowing how it works out very practically in our lives is good. It's very important. So I want to begin, first of all, with the passage that Dove referred to. Uh, They were making a reference to a specific biblical passage, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Again, that's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And in the entire flow of the book of Romans, it really is a remarkable and and notable statement that the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made there to telling us as believers, in light of all that God has done and given us before, that we should offer bodies to God as a living sacrifice. I want to read to you something else, something from the J.B. Phillips translation. J.B. Phillips was a scholar of a previous generation, and he did a wonderful translation of the New Testament. And uh, I think that J.B. Phillips' translation of this is really insightful. Uh, Again, just like with any translation, there's probably not everything I would agree about it, but this particular verse, I say J.B. Phillips nails the idea of this verse. Here it is from the J.B. Phillips' translation, Romans 12.1. With eyes wide open... To the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, in this passage, that Paul is begging. In the New King James, it says, I beseech. In J.B. Phillips, he says, I beg you, but that's the idea. He's begging, and this is an appeal to the will of the individual believer. In other words, he's going to ask believers to do something uh, that involves their will. Now, I'm not trying to imply for a moment that anything we do for God, we do in isolation from God. 
It's always him working in us and through us, yet we dare not deny that there's a vital aspect of what at least feels to the believer like their choice. They can choose to either present their body as a living sacrifice to God or not. And here God is appealing to our will, telling us to choose. He says, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, brethren reminds us he's speaking to believers and he's telling us to do this in light of the mercies of God. This is what he's saying. Again, I like how Phillips phrased that with eyes wide open to the mercies of God. If you were just to go backwards from this point in the book of Romans, And think about all the way that God has displayed his mercy to his people. Man, you, you, well, I'll just run off a quick list for you. He's given us justification from the guilt and penalty from sin. He's lifted us in Jesus Christ and identified us with Jesus Christ. We've been placed under law, under grace, I should say, not under law. We've been given the Holy Spirit to live within us. We've been given the promise of help in all our affliction. We have an assurance of our standing in God's election. We have a confidence of coming glory. We have a confidence of no separation from the love of God. And we have a confidence in God's continued faithfulness in light of all of those mercies. Now, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, when we read that phrase, present your bodies... And when it's paired together with the idea of a living sacrifice, what this calls to mind is what priests do. This is priestly service. And spiritually speaking, we bring our bodies to God's altar. Now, I believe that when Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of the body here, It's in reference to our entire being. Listen, whatever you want to say about your spirit, soul, flesh, mind, each of them, at least in this life, live in your body. If you can truly give your body to God, the soul, the spirit will go with it because they all dwell within your body. So to present your bodies means that God wants you, not just your work. He wants all all of you. So he says, make a decision. I beseech you, I beg you, I'm appealing to your will to present the entirety of you, including your body, but including all of you as a living sacrifice to God. Now, for first century people, both Jews and pagans, they knew firsthand what sacrifice was all about. Now, of course, the Jews knew it, knew it from their sacrificial system at the temple in Jerusalem. The pagans knew it from their sacrifices to pagan gods. And so for Paul to beg that we as believers make ourselves a living sacrifice to God, it's using a very striking image. The sacrifice is living because it's brought alive to the altar. Now look, I don't want to get too technical here, but in the Old Testament system of sacrifice, you did not kill the animal on the altar. You killed the animal, then you placed it upon the altar where it would be. Here, we come to the altar alive. A sacrifice is living. 
but it's also living because we stay alive at the altar. This is our ongoing service. Now, so what does it mean? What does it mean for us practically? And this was Dove's question. What does it mean practically for us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God? Now, for that, I want to go back in the book of Romans to Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, because in the midst of an amazing chapter, Paul, I think, gives us very practical instruction on this. Okay, Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, we read this. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, again, I want to call your attention to this phrase. I'm going to take you back to that scripture in just a moment. I want you to notice this phrase in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Present your members. Do not present your members as as instrument of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, friends, I think this is really important just because we need to remind ourselves what the idea of members is there. Listen, we don't often use this vocabulary in modern English, but they used to speak more commonly, and this is kind of the, the sense in the New King James Version here, a member being a body part. You know, they, they, they could talk about a- amputating a member, and it could be amputating your hand. A member can refer, and that's exactly what's being referred to in Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, to a part of your body. And what Paul is literally saying, again, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, certainly Paul was the human author, but the Holy Spirit was guiding him. He's saying, do not present the parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but do present the parts of your body as instruments to God for the working of righteousness. This is absolutely key to walking in the freedom that Jesus Christ has won for us as his people. This is what we're supposed to do. You see, we're supposed to present the parts of our body as um, tools for God's glory. I like how the New Living Translation communicates this idea. It says this, Do not let any part of your body become a tool of wickedness to be used for sinning. Man, that's a great way to capture the sense of this. You see, in this context, Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, your members are the parts of your body. Your ears, your lips, your eyes, your hands, your mind, and so forth. So the idea is very practical. You have eyes. Do not put your eyes in the service of sin. You have ears. Do not put your ears in the service of sin. You have hands. Do not put your hands in the service of sin, but instead make them servants of righteousness. Present yourself to God. You see, it isn't enough to take our 
instruments, our weapons. That's actually what the ancient Greek word has the sense of there. To take instruments or weapons away from the surface of sin, then our eyes, ears, hands, lips, everything we have, it is now to be enlisted in the service of righteousness. And really, that's a glorious and a powerful thing. So again, I just really want to uh, emphasize this. The passage in Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, is that we are to present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Listen, believer, I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ has claim over your body. He has rescued you, body, soul, and spirit over the entire you. And so it matters what you do with your body. Take the parts, the instruments, the members of your body out of service to sin and to the service of God in righteousness. That is exactly what we are called to do, what we are supposed to do. So that is what we're called to do. And I think that that's a great way to explain exactly what um, Dove was speaking about, how to practically present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Okay, I hear that we're having a lot of trouble with buffering. I don't know if that's the situation. All I can do is apologize, folks. You know, we have our streaming software and all, but um, we just do the very best we can with it. So uh, again, we work on these things and we'll try to do the best. Let me see if I could take a look at some of my settings right here and see if there's anything to do with this. No, not that I want to risk trying to do uh, on the fly. So we'll just continue on. And again, if there's a fair amount of buffering going on in the output, we apologize for that. Uh, Before I go on to the questions that have come from the live chat, uh, I do want to uh, come back to another question that came in last week that I wasn't able to answer. I just didn't, didn't, no, I had never really thought through it, or at least I had thought through it, but the answer wasn't in the forefront of my mind. And I can't remember who submitted the question last week, but the question was, why did God not pronounce the second day of creation as being good? Of course, we find this in the seven days or the six days of creation as related in Genesis chapter one. We find that with every day of creation, God said that it was good except for the second day of creation. Let let me read those verses to you. Genesis chapter one, verses six, seven, and eight. It reads like this. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. And there's no pronouncement and God saw that it was good. Why? And I thought that was a very good question, but I, I didn't have an immediate answer. Well, look, just do a little bit of reading, do a little bit of digging. I I think there's a pretty simple, and now I think there's a wrong answer to this question. And the wrong answer is this, is some people will point out that on the second day of creation, what God did was he divided. 
he divided the waters from the waters. And this division of the waters made for the firmament, that is the sky up above, what we might call the atmosphere, the blue sky, the heavens and that thing, the blue heavens, so to speak. And uh, the division made a difference between the atmosphere and the waters which were on the earth. So what happened on the second day of creation was a division. And the idea is God didn't say it was good because there was a dividing. But listen to what I want you to understand is that dividing is a prominent theme throughout uh, God's creation as recorded in the first few chapters of Genesis. He's dividing all the time. Uh, He's dividing light from dark. He's dividing the waters of the firmament. He's dividing humanity from the rest of creation. He's dividing this. He's dividing that. Look, the idea that not everything is the same is very important to God. And and I would say that today, the idea that there is a distinction, as pointed out in creation, between men and women, male and female, is very important in God's economy. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that he created men and he created them male and female. Again, that's a dividing. So the idea that God ordains certain separations, certain divisions, is true. And it is also true that in some sense, in heaven, in the redeeming of all things, some things, many things that are divided in the present age will not be divided in the age to come, but not everything by any means. Light will still be separated from darkness in the age to come. So I don't think that the reason why God did not say it was good on the second day of creation was because he did primarily a work of dividing. I think it's more fundamental than that. On the second day of creation, I think you can make a pretty good case that God did not actually create anything, not directly. He said that he made the firmament, but he made the firmament simply by dividing the waters in the heavens from the waters in the earth. What God did on the second day of creation was not to create anything, but simply to work with what he had already created on the first day. And because God reserves that pronouncement and God saw that it was good for the days that he actually created something, the second day of creation was actually shaping or molding what he had actually created. Now, something was made, of course, on the second day of creation, but it was made by division, not creating something out of nothing. All right, so again, I thought that was a great question from last week. And folks, let me just tell you, when I don't know something, I don't mind telling you I don't know. Uh, it's just simply a problem. I just got to say I don't know. So uh, I didn't know this, but again, I just looked up some of my resources, some of my references, did a little careful look, and I think we came to a satisfactory answer to that. Okay, one more thing. I told you there'd be a long lead-in today before we get to the questions on the live chat. This coming Monday... At 8 a.m. West Coast time. So adjust that for wherever you are in the United States, North America, Europe, Africa, around the world. 8 a.m. West Coast time in the United States. We're going to do a live premiere of the last 
teaching in my series through the Psalms. I taught through, in much the setting I'm in here, sitting at this desk with this books behind me and such, at this microphone, I taught through all 150 Psalms. It's more than a hundred hours of verse-by-verse teaching throughout the Psalms. What we're going to do at 8 a.m. this coming Monday is premiere it. Now, this is going to be the only difference. It's going to live stream the video of me teaching, and I will be there present in the comments. So if you want to chat with me, comment with me, look, we're going to try to keep it about the Psalms and specifically Psalm 150, but we feel like this is something special. This feel like this is something to celebrate just a little bit. So if you can join us, whatever time it is where you at, 8 a.m. on Monday. It's the day after uh, Palm Sunday. So I guess it's April 11th, perhaps. On April 11th, the Monday after uh, Palm Sunday in this year, 2022, 8 a.m. Pacific time, uh, we're going to premiere the video and I'll be there in the live chat just to follow along with you. So join us, please. All right. Now, finally, to the questions that are coming in on the live chat from both our YouTube viewers, our Facebook Live viewers, and our uh, TWR360 audience, whom we're very happy for our partnership with them. All right, let me go to the questions here from David on YouTube says, why do so many in the American church today reject the deity of Christ? Can a believer still go to heaven if they knowingly reject what the Bible clearly says about who Jesus is? Okay, David, you're really asking two questions there. Number one, you ask, why do so many in the American church today reject the deity of Christ? All I can say, David, is that it's because of just plain apostasy. It's, it's because of rejecting what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Friends, the teaching of the deity of Christ is so plain and so clear throughout the entire New Testament. I would say it's also present in the Old Testament. Let's just talk about the New Testament. It's so plain and it's so clear that the very first Christians and that Jesus himself regarded himself as deity, as God, not a junior deity, not a lesser deity, but God. It's so plain and so clear that I think you have to work to explain it away or to deny it or anything like that. So I have no other explanation for it. It can't be misunderstanding. It has to be, in some sense, apostasy. Now, can a believer, so to speak, I like how you put believer in quotation marks, still go to heaven if they knowingly reject what the Bible clearly says about who Jesus is? David, I say no. Now look, We are not saved by our degree of theological correctness. So I want to say, and I I hope, well, what I'm going to say could be twisted or misunderstood, but I hope I can explain it well to you. We're not saved by our theological correctness, and there's actually a fair amount that someone may have wrong about biblical truth and still be saved and still have a real trust in a real Jesus and, and, and be going to heaven because their misunderstandings come from ignorance, come from confusion. They're just ignorant. They haven't been taught 
They don't understand. They're confused. Because, again, we we need to point out, we are not saved by our degree of theological correctness. Heaven is not about getting the highest score on a theology. It's about a living, real trust in the living, real Jesus. But I emphasize that it has to be the real Jesus. And if someone knowingly rejects, and David, that's what you asked. Your question was this. Can a believer, so to speak, still go to heaven if they knowingly reject what the Bible clearly says about who Jesus is? And the answer to that question is no. For someone to understand and see what the Bible teaches about the deity of Jesus Christ, about who Jesus is, and to reject that, they are rejecting the true Jesus. Friends, I like to put it like this. Necessary for salvation is, I'm not saying this is the only necessary thing, but but high on the list is this. You have to bring the real you to the real Jesus. You got to bring a real you. The real you with all your sins, with all your failings, with all your weakness, with all your brokenness, with all your rejection of God, you need to bring the real you to God, not a fake you, not a phony you, that doesn't go anywhere. You need to bring the real you to the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is the Jesus presented to us here in the Bible. We would not know the real Jesus if not for biblical truth. We would not know the real Jesus apart from that. So, for someone to reject, knowingly especially, what the Bible says about the real Jesus, they're trusting in a make-believe Jesus. Let me tell you something. A make-believe Jesus will not get you to heaven. A make-believe Jesus cannot save your soul. It's got to be the real you that you bring to the real Jesus, the Jesus that actually exists, the Jesus that is described to us in the scriptures itself. So, uh, David, that's my answer to this question. I hope that's helpful for you. Next question comes from Lucho of our YouTube audience. Lucho says, what's your take on anxiety and depression? Is depression and anxiety caused by demons? Lucho, Here's the problem with your question. Nothing wrong with you asking this question. But there are many, many causes to anxiety and depression. So I cannot come before you today and say this is the cause for anxiety or depression. Uh, There are multiple causes. And I think it takes wisdom and discernment and sometimes a medical doctor to figure out what might be the cause of anxiety and depression in a particular of in individual. Now, could it be demonic? Yes, it could. It could, of course. <laughs> if we want to absolutely exclude the idea, if we want to say that demonic harassment, I'm not talking about possession. Uh, I, Lucha, you didn't say whether or not you were talking about believers or those who are not believers, not yet believers. But I just want everybody to know, I do not believe that believers, that those who are born again by God's Spirit, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit, indwelt in the living Christ, people who are actually born again, I don't believe those people can be demon-possessed, but they can certainly be demon-harassed. 
And is it possible that in some way anxiety or even depression might come from demonic harassment? Well, it's certainly possible. We must not jump to such conclusions, but we must not exclude such possibilities either. So, uh, causes for anxiety or depression can be just something about personality. Look, we, we see in our children, and I'm not speaking of just us and our wonderful three children that my wife Ingalil and I have, but we see in our children generally they're, they're born with certain personality traits. And some people have a personality trait that's, that's tending towards more anxiety, towards more melancholy or depressive character. That Some of it's just inborn in a personality trait. Some of it may be a response to a traumatic experience. Some of it may be response to the environment that they grew up in. Some of it might be in response to a medical condition that they carry. Some of it may be in response to a particular lie that they have believed. And, and it's possible that somewhere in the mix, it could be attributed, at least in part, to demonic harassment. So, Lucha, we can't exclude the possibility, but we do have to recognize that there can actually be many, many causes to anxiety and depression. And we need to be very careful with this so that we don't lead or encourage somebody to a wrong solution to uh, because of a wrong diagnosis. Okay, let me go to the next question here from Ari, from our Facebook audience. I hope I'm pronouncing your first name correctly there. Ari, or maybe it's Ari. Um, what should we think about self-esteem? Does the fact that we must love others mean that it is bad to love ourselves and feel confident? Ari, I think it's important for us to have an accurate self-esteem. I don't think so much in terms of good or bad self-esteem. I think that what we need to do is come to a place where we have an accurate self-esteem. So, if I'm um, mired in sin and rebellion against God, I don't need to be feeling great about myself. Um, but if I am troubled by thoughts of worthlessness and shame and humiliation and being out of God's honor and goodness, well, then maybe I need to know who I am truly in Jesus Christ. So, we need to let the emphasis match the situation. There are some people who have a ridiculously high self-esteem and they have no reason to think so highly of themselves. I, it's just true. That person needs less self-esteem. There's other people who again, they, they feel so shamed. They feel so worthless, useless in this world. They need to understand who they are and what their potential is in Jesus Christ. So I don't think there's, just like with the previous question having to do with anxiety and depression, Ari, I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all answer except to say this, we should have an accurate self 
regard, self-esteem, accurate about my weaknesses, rebellions, and failings, accurate about my strengths and, and uh, you know, place again. Now, he, here's what real humility is. It's not that we're not real about our strengths. You know, it, so, sometimes you'll meet somebody who's like a musician. Uh, Devin, our moderator, who's a great guitar player. Um, Devin's a great guitar player. It would not be good or right for Devin to pretend that he's not a great guitar player. He is. He's not claiming to be best in the world, but he's very good at what he does. For Devin to claim, well, I'm not very good. Oh, this is, I can't really play the guitar at all. That's not good. That's just weird to talk like that. Now, for him to say, yeah, I'm a good guitar player. God's grace has been good to me. I've been able to, I've had a natural talent and God gave me the desire and the ability to develop it. I know there's probably lots of people that might be better guitar players than me, but I'm good at what I do. Nothing wrong. That's just accurate. So we can have an accurate self-esteem. All right, I hope that helps you. And uh, check out Devin's uh, guitar work sometime. Maybe he can include that uh, in the description or the live chat, tell you where to get some of his uh, music. How about that, Devin? Put that out to people in the live chat. Okay, uh, next question comes from Anne from our TWR360 audience. God bless you, TWR360 audience. Anne says... My husband and I grew up in a small country church, in small country churches. Now we're attending a large church that encourages fasting. What's your opinion on the importance of fasting? Hold on, I'm going to look and see if I have a book behind me. Hold on. Uh, I'm sad to say that I don't see the book behind me. I have it on another shelf here in my house. Let me just do another quick look. No, I don't see it behind me. Look, my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, uh, who lives in Sweden with my dear mother-in-law, Gunnar, uh, Nils Bergstrom wrote a wonderful book, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. Look it up on Amazon. Dedication through fasting and prayer. Uh, it, it's very instructful about the practice of fasting. And my father-in-law, Nils, is a man who has tons of both Bible experience and practical experience of fasting throughout most of his life. Now, as for the importance of fasting, it is important. It should be a regular practice of our Christian life. Now, like with a lot of things in the Bible that should be regular practices, uh, prayer, um, receiving the Lord's table, communion, um, you know, fasting, I'll include in that, it, generosity. We're not told how often a week, we're not told once a month, we're not told once a year. The, the practice is just presented to us as something we should do. But in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was talking about the practices of a righteous life and how those practices can be misunderstood and how he wanted to clarify the proper understanding of them, he talked about praying, giving, and fasting. And it's as if he assumed that his followers would be doing those things. 
He's just telling them the right way, the proper way to do those things. So um, fasting is a legitimate part. Now, I, I do think it's important that fasting be voluntary. Just as we can encourage people to pray and give, but we should not force them to, it's the same with fasting. And I will say this about fasting as well. Look, people have different levels of experience with fasting and they have different physical makeups. So fasting should be approached according to your level of experience and uh, your physical makeup. Look, there are some people who have diabetes or or other you know physical where they, they need to take very close monitoring, be very careful about what they put or don't put into their bodies as far as food and such. So it's important that we do it, uh, you know, maybe gradually and and work ourselves up. Uh, For some people right now to go a day without eating would be nothing to them. They could do it very easily. Other people would be a very significant sacrifice, but it's a good thing to do. So, yes, I do think that it's part of the Christian life. It's a neglected part of the Christian life. Uh, I, I would say that I do fast. Um, I, I, I probably should make more of a schedule for fasting. But it is a, a, a part of my Christian life, and I think it's a good thing to do. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Leo, from our YouTube audience, who asks... At what point should we apply the principle, don't waste the pearls on the pigs? Uh, I live in a liberal city with atheist friends all around me. Sometimes I want to cut them off. Well, let me say, uh, Leo, I understand what you're saying. And let me give you a few things to look for when you should sort of withdraw and no longer uh, cast the pearls of God's truth, the gospel, his word before others, um, because they seem so determined to reject it. In that regard, in the illustration that Jesus gave, they would correspond to the swine. We're not saying they're pigs. We're not being demeaning. We're just saying in the illustration that Jesus gave. Okay, here's a couple things to watch for. Number one, watch for... um, a hardness of heart in yourself. It's probably better to withdraw somewhat than to give angry, harsh, argumentative answers back to people. So take a look at your own heart, your own life in the midst of this. The second thing to look for is an honest calculation as to if there's any likelihood of them receiving it or not. Now, I know this one is very difficult because we can't tell how the Holy Spirit of God may be operating in a particular person. So we may think that a person is not open at all, but in fact, unseen to us, the Holy Spirit's really working in them or we'll use the word that we speak. But there is a sense in which when people seem to be such hardened, settled rejectors of God's truth, we can say, I'm going to look for people who will listen to me. Jesus did that. Paul did that. I think it's within our own wisdom before God to do that. 
And in a sense, you're being merciful to the person in those circumstances. You're being merciful to the person because you're not adding to their guilt of continual rejecting. Every time someone who does not yet know Jesus rejects the truth about who God is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus did to rescue them, every time someone who's not yet a believer does that, makes that kind of rejection, it adds to their guilt before God. And it may be appropriate for us to withdraw, again, as Jesus in some cases did, and Paul in some cases did, uh, because we don't want to add to their guilt. So look at your own heart, try to look at their heart, although we can't do it perfectly, and try to let the Holy Spirit lead you in this. Very good question. Let me go to the next question from our Facebook viewer, Mariel. Mariel asks, what can a Christian do to receive a spiritual gift? I've been praying to have a spiritual gift, but I haven't received one. Okay, Mariel, God bless you. Thank you for your question. I think that's a great question. And I I thank the Lord that you want to receive whatever spiritual gifts God has for you, and you want to be used uh, by God some way in his church, in his body this way. Now, let, Mary, let me give you a few things. First of all, sometimes we hinder the reception or the operation of a spiritual gift because our motives aren't right. Mary, please, I I don't know if this is the case with you or I, I just don't know. So I'm just throwing this out here to you. But it's possible for someone to seek a spiritual gift, but their motive is basically uh, pride. Uh, I want to be seen as someone important or powerful or big or, you know, great among God's people. So God, would you please give me this spiritual gift? Listen, Many people who pray for something like the gift of miracles or the gift of healing, that's what they really want. And again, Mary, I'm not saying this is you, but I'm throwing this possibility out because surely it is some people who suffer under this. It's pride. They want attention. They want to receive things unto themselves. And so uh, that is surely the difficulty in some situations. Okay, that's one aspect. Another aspect to it is Uh, faith. These are things that are received by faith. And so I I don't think we necessarily wait until we feel that we have a particular spiritual gift. If we have a sense from the Holy Spirit that God has granted the gift, maybe he wants us to step out in faith and use it. Not foolishness, not presumption, but believing that God perhaps wants us to step out in faith and use it. But then here's a third aspect. Mario, there is always the aspect of timing. Look, there there have been many times when I thought I was ready for something, but God knew that I wasn't. I'm like, God, why are you waiting? What's going on? Why is this taking so long? On and on and on and on. And really, it was a situation where I was absolutely convinced I was ready, but God knew that I was not. And now looking back on it, I could say, well, of course I wasn't ready, but I didn't know it at the time. So, Marilyn, don't stress about this. Keep loving the Lord, keep serving the Lord, and God will guide you to the spiritual gifts that he has ordained for your life in him. 
and he'll do it powerfully, I'm convinced of it. So thank you for that question there, Mariel. Okay, now look, before I take on the question from Jeanette, I need to ask this, or I need to say this. Second time I'm saying it, but we don't have the same viewers throughout our whole time. Monday, this coming Monday on YouTube Live, it it won't be out there for our uh, Facebook viewers, so you're going to have to come over to YouTube Live. Go to our YouTube Live channel, subscribe, it'll give you the notifications, click the notifications so you know what's happening. Monday morning at 8 o'clock Pacific, we're going to premiere my last teaching through the book of Psalms. Friends, do you know that there's 150 Psalms? There's a lot of them. And I spent a whole year teaching through the book of Psalms, and we've been releasing them week by week here on our YouTube channel. And on Monday, we're going to, as sort of a milestone, release Psalm 150, and while it plays, I'm going to be there in the live chat to receive your comments, questions, to interact with you. It's kind of like, hey, let's get together and watch this last Psalm teaching all together, and I think it'll be fun. I I hope you'll regard it that way. But premiering the presentation of my teaching through Psalm 150 It's the end of a hundred hours, more than a hundred hours of teaching through the Psalms. Join us this coming Monday. I suppose I should get the date. Wouldn't that be good if I knew the date? This coming Monday, it is in fact July 11th, July 11th, April 11th. Uh, Let's come together there and join me for that YouTube premiere. April 11th, 8 a.m. Pacific time, whatever time it is for you. Okay, next question comes from our YouTube viewer, Jeanette says... Were there foreigners who lived among the Israelites' Gentiles? Example, Joshua 8.35. If so, wouldn't this mean that God has always included Gentiles in the plan of salvation? Okay, Jeanette, yes. Let me explain. Uh, God has always included Gentiles in the plan of salvation. Always, because... Being saved, being made right with God was always a matter of faith, not lineage. You're not born into salvation. You you have to be born again into salvation, at least regenerate under the new covenant sent. And so even an Israelite was chosen, certainly, I I believe that the Jewish people are a chosen people, but they're not all chosen for salvation. They're chosen to have a specific, important role in God's unfolding plan of the ages, which included the acting out of his kingdom during the days of the Old Testament kingdoms, It included preserving his revelation to mankind. It included, most importantly, bringing forth Jesus the Messiah. But Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And it was always understood that God would use Israel to reach the nations. Now, as Gentiles or pagans came and lived among the Jewish people, many of them, not necessarily all, but many of them, came to trust in the God of Israel, including his promise of a coming Messiah who would save all, or save all who trusted in him. So the door of salvation was always open to the Gentiles, 
they could come and trust in Israel's God. It wouldn't make them Jews necessarily, although they could marry into, uh, you know, sort of the Jewish family, ethnically speaking, but they could come and believe in the God of Israel. We trust that many did, but not necessarily all, for example. So foreigners who lived among the Israelites, I would suppose that many of them came to trust in, admire, respect, and obey, honor the God of Israel. And thus, if they uh, trusted him unto righteousness, as goes back to the forefather of the Jewish family, Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And it's that relationship of trusting love in God, especially trusting his promise of the provision of a savior, someone to save us knowing we can't save ourselves. That's the core of salvation. So I hope that answers that for you there, Jeanette. Next question comes from Naomi. Naomi asks, uh, can we talk about the exchanged life as Hudson uh, I don't know if you're talking about Hudson Taylor, because I forget who, I, maybe it was Hudson Taylor who talked about the exchange life, but now I'm familiar with the phrase. Um, the exchange life simply means to live with a high sense of our identification in Jesus Christ and to live with the awareness that he took and bore my sins upon the cross and now he lives in me and lives out his righteousness. So that's the idea of the exchange. And listen, I think this is a very important point of the Christian life. I suppose like just about everything, it could be exaggerated or put out of proportion. But simply to say, simply to recognize that there is a true exchange Jesus Christ takes my sin, my shame, my dishonor. He takes it from me, my guilt, the, the wrath I deserve to receive. He bears it upon the cross, and now I receive his righteousness, his life within myself. That's the exchange. To live in vital awareness that Christ lives in me. Look, I heard one preacher explain it this way, and I thought it was a great way to explain it. He said, look, Christian, you need to realize that the best Christian who ever lived lives inside you. Isn't that a great way to think of it? Now, who is the best Christian that ever lived? I'll give you a moment to think about that. The best Christian who ever lived was, no, it wasn't Paul, no, it wasn't John the Baptist, no, it wasn't Peter, no, it wasn't Billy Graham, no, it wasn't Charles Spurgeon, who's over my shoulder here. Who was the best Christian who ever lived? Jesus Christ was the best Christian who ever lived. Now, friends, the best Christian who ever lived lives inside you. Isn't that worth some attention? Isn't that worth some praise? There is a real power to the truth that... So much of proper Christian living is simply learning how to be who we are or what we are in Jesus Christ. So Naomi, great question. I hope that's helpful for you.
All right, our last question from the day comes from Angelia. Angelia asks this question. Does being sealed by the Holy Spirit mean being marked or closed up? Oh, man. Angela, that's, that's great. Because really, there are two senses you can think of being sealed. Um, in the classic sense of the uh, Old Testament times, Bible times, to be sealed was to be marked. I'm not advertising for this water firm, but you know this water bottle is marked by this label. So in an Old Testament or New Testament, because you could say it's sealed by the label. But you could also say, and this is more of a modern conception, that it's sealed by the cap that goes on top. So which is more the idea, biblically speaking? Well, Angelia, I would say that it's more the idea of being marked, but being marked has an inherent idea of protection over. Do you get the reason why? Because if we are sealed by Jesus Christ, if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, it means that his stamp of ownership is upon us and that means that we are protected. Look, I suppose there aren't many police cars that get stolen. I'm sure it happens a few times every year in the United States or other parts of the world, but not very often. Why? Because everybody knows that car belongs to the police, at least if it's a marked police car. That car belongs to the police. I'm not going to steal it because of who it belongs to. The symbol of the police department on the door of the car is the seal, but that seal has an inherent protection within it. In the same way, I want you to understand, the seal of the Holy Spirit is primarily an identification mark upon us, but that carries with it an inherent idea of protection. So I hope that's helpful for you, Angelique. We are gloriously, this is one of the beautiful benefits of salvation, that the Bible, specifically we opened up talking about the book of Romans, I'll conclude by talking about the book of Romans, it's one of the beautiful benefits of salvation that we're given in Jesus Christ, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, we are marked as belonging to Him, and that's a glorious, wonderful position for us to be in. All right, folks, that was our last question for the day. Next Thursday, uh, we plan to be with you again. I hope you can join us. And allow me to say this. Uh, again, I just want to give you a quick reminder. We're going to premiere the uh, publication, I guess we could say, of our last teaching on the book of Psalms, Psalm 150. It's a pre-recorded teaching, but I'm going to be there in the live chat to interact with you as it plays. I think that could be a lot of fun. I hope you can join us. 8 a.m. April 11th, 8 a.m. Pacific time, whatever time that is for you. I hope you can join us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.